Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that in your sheer goodness, you reveal yourself to us and you declare to us uh, your righteousness that has uh, been given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we receive by faith. And we thank you that we can have certainty uh, in knowing how we stand before you, uh, not because of what we have achieved on our own or what we've done or how we've uh, managed to fix ourselves, but that through a clear revelation of your word, we know how we stand with you because of what you have done for us. We pray this morning that you'll help us, whether we are feeling uh, removed and far away from you, spiritually dry, or, or whether we've had a stressful week, or whether we're filled with distractions or guilt, or whether we are soaring high and feeling close to you. We pray that your word would comfort us and encourage us, and uh, you'll speak to us with and, and fill us with great joy. Uh, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned before, for those of you who've been with us for the last uh, few weeks since the beginning of this series, uh, there has been some tough weeks, hasn't there, as we looked at uh, the first three chapters, which was heavy on sin. And uh, during the week, as I was reading uh, some stuff in preparation for today, I read a quote that really kind of made me stop and think, uh, and it's uh, here on the screen, right? Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And I paused for a moment because it was such an insightful quote. It reminded me of what we've been hearing the last few weeks, that sin is like a gift that keeps on giving. Or more accurately, it's like a curse that keeps on cursing. As we allowed ourselves to hear what God had to say in Romans 1 and 2 and 3, it wasn't just a one-off sin that has a one-off consequence. It's this uh, pattern that we're brought into, this, this brokenness, as well as this judgment and wrath that we're put under, such that when we sin and God judges us, He actually gives us over into more sin and more condemnation. So we heard that, right, for the last few weeks. But we also heard last week that in response and in contrast and to counteract the effects of sin, God shows grace and He pours on abundant grace to cover over the sin. We saw last week, we began by looking at God's righteousness revealed through faith, the justification, right? The being made right with God that Jesus brings. And we saw two aspects of that. We saw redemption, the penalty for our sins paid. And we talked about propitiation, the wrath of God removed as part of what it means to be justified by Christ. Now today, we see how it flows on to even greater blessings and joys. In a way, if justification by faith is, is like a river that is beautiful and glorious, but leads to a waterfall that is even more glorious, it's kind of what we're seeing today. Justification by faith leads to even greater joys and blessings uh, that we're going to see in chapter 5 of Romans. We see that the gospel not only takes away the bad, the judgment, the condemnation, the wrath, but it piles on the good, the blessings that God wants to pour on His children. In our passage today, we see that having been justified by faith, we have three things, three amazing things that flow out of it. Firstly, is the joy of having peace with God. The second is the comfort of having assurance. And the third thing is this amazing uh, un, uh, idea that we've been transferred from the old humanity that we all know so well into a new humanity that we can have in Christ. Three amazing blessings to, to really count our joys, to really rejoice in today. Today is about good news. Now, the first thing we see in verses 1 to 4 is the first, uh, f- 
first part of the waterfall, right? The, we have peace with God, the first great joy that flows out of being justified by God. Now, when we see the word peace, or we think about the word peace, what usually comes to mind? Well, if you're like most people, I think we often think of a scene like this. Like this. <laughs> like this. Okay. Third time lucky. Right? You know, maybe you're a climber sort, a bit of an adventurer, and you get to the peak somewhere, and it's just peace. It's just you and nature. Or maybe you don't like working so hard. Maybe you just want to go to the great court and lie down. Not much peace there, really, but it's kind of peaceful, isn't it? In the middle of UQ, there's this great court, and you can just lie there and not, miss, and not go to any classes and just peace. Maybe this is more relevant for the, second, for the first service people, but the next piece is this idea of just chilling at home. All right, everything's been clean and tidy. Toys are put away. I just told my parents here. And you can picture a mum sort of sitting there, just enjoying the peace and quiet, finally, of the kids being at school and all the chores being done. Or, you know, or a dad coming home from work and just, you know, relaxing on his comfy chair, watching his TV in his den. That kind of idea of peace. But is that really what peace is about? Now, when it comes to the Bible, it's one of my kind of hobby horses, but it's, it's an important teaching that I always try and bring up. That the biblical idea of peace is much more than that. This is kind of a bit too weak, these pictures of peace. Because peace in the Bible is about the absence or the, 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 the fixing of war, right? And of conflict. It's about reconciliation. It's about things that are broken and in conflict and in war being joined back together again to be made whole. That's the idea of peace in the Bible. It's this deep sense of there being conflict and war and problems and brokenness and it being fixed you see, this is the kind of peace that, 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 that God wants us to have, to have peace with God in this kind of way, right? You see, if sin didn't enter the picture, you wouldn't really need a word peace to exist in the, in the vocabulary because it would just be a normal set of affairs. If there was no sin, there would be no conflict, there would be no brokenness, there would be no war. And so when you talk about peace, you don't need to. You just say, it's just normal. But we have to talk about peace because there is war and there is conflict and there is brokenness and disorder. We had no peace with God before. Only conflict under God's righteous wrath. For we've been told over and over the last few weeks, we ignored God and we replaced Him with other gods. And in this passage, we're told that we were ungodly in verse 6. We were sinners in verse 8. And worst of all, we were God's enemies. Can you imagine being an enemy of God? Now, we often think that humans treat God as our enemy, Right? Why is he so stingy? Why is he so judgmental? Why is he so this or that? Now, it's one thing to think of God as our enemy. It's worse, I think, to have God treat us as his enemy. You know, think about it, right? If, let's say, I didn't like, say, Donald Trump, right? The most powerful man in the world at the moment, probably. And if I treated him as my enemy, he'd be like, well, whatever, right? No big deal. What can I do to him? But if he regarded me as his enemy... He has the, 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 the 21st squadron or whatever, air, you know, to, to, to come and parachute down my house and drop a bomb, right? To be an enemy of someone so powerful is bad news. And we are told in Scripture that we are God's enemies. We were God's enemies. Because justified by faith through Christ means we are no longer His enemies. And we are no longer under God's wrath or God's anger or God's judgment. 
Miranda, we are reconciled. We have peace with God. And he goes on to say, having peace with God is to be able to access his grace in which we stand. Right? Having peace with God, we have access into his grace in which we stand. What a massive difference to what we were before. Before we had no access to God. Right? He is the holy, almighty God, and we were sinners. But now we have access. We can stand before him. Now this access is it's like... You know, sometimes when you go to a rock concert or you see in the movies that people go to rock concerts and then they get this thing called the full access pass. But really, is it really full access? So let's say you get a full access pass to Jay-Z's concert or Mariah Carey or whoever is your jam, right? Do you really think you have full access? Can you put your arm around Mariah Carey and you go, you know, besties, and walk around the back of the stage, get on stage with her and sing? No one wants that, right? You can't really go home with her and enjoy her palace, her mansion, her cars, you don't really have full access, do you? But the access that we have with God, we're told, is to be like his son, like his daughter. To be able to have full-time access. At any moment, at every moment, having been justified by faith and having peace with God, we are with God in his presence. And we're in his presence, not cowering in fear, as you imagine we might have to if we are sinners and he's God. But we can be in his presence by grace. His favor, his pleasure on us. You can't imagine that, right? Because we, we don't have God right here physically. But having peace with God means having this access into his grace in which we stand. Not kneel, not bow down, but be able to stand. Now, we're not talking about a proud standing, right? We're talking about a, a confident, but not proud, a gracious ability to stand. When I think of access by grace, by a gift in which we stand, I think of Stephen Bradbury. Who knows Stephen Bradbury? Okay, cool. No one of you knows Stephen Bradbury. You will know about him after I talk about him, right? Who watches the Winter Olympics? Okay, not many of us, right? Because we're Asian, okay? There's no snow where we come from, most of us. Uh, and I don't watch the Winter Olympics either, except for 2002. In the Winter Olympics, uh, there was this guy from Australia who was doing speed skating. And the story about Stephen Bradbury is that he was a pretty not very good speed skater. Uh, and he went to the heats, knowing that he probably wouldn't be able to cut it with these younger fellas. He was about 30-plus at the time. And so he kind of um, did his best, but he had much expectations. And he came third in his heat, and only the top two get through. But anyway, one of them got disqualified because they put their finger in the wrong place or something, right? And so he made it into the semifinals. In semifinals, he thought, well, semifinals is the next night. I haven't got much energy left, so I'll just try my best. And he knows that he was going to pack his bags and go home after that. So he came, uh, he was going along, and he was pretty much near the back, maybe around fourth or fifth. And then uh, someone fell in front of him, and another one. So he made it through to the finals. <laughs> All right? And then the finals, which was the next night, he was completely spent already. He knew he had no way of catch, keeping up. So he got into the last lap. He was like fully 20 meters behind. Like 20 meters is like longer than this hall, I think. And in speed skating terms, that's like you could just be in Singapore, right? And the race was in America, all right? That's about as far as you can be away from the finish line. And he was just cruising along. And then the people in front of him, they were going so hard that one person tripped, caught up with the other person's leg, and then it was like a domino effect. It was like a train wreck. And you can't help but watch this train wreck. And then uh, five seconds later, you see Stephen Bradbury cruising along the outside. <laughs> finish line, right? And there he is, standing on the podium. <laughs> Seriously, 
He has access where he does not belong. By grace, a complete gift. And he stands. And you know when he's standing there doing this in glory, and he's kind of like doing this. You know? He shrugs. On TV, on international TV, he's like kind of trying to enjoy the moment, but kind of going like... Man, Stephen Bradbury is a Christian hero, right? Because it, it reflects to us this ability that God has given us to be able to have peace with him, to be able to have access by grace in which we stand. It's an amazing gift. And it leads to, I think, two immediate responses of joy that we see in this passage. The first response of joy that, that Paul talks about is the joy about a certain future. Right? Paul says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Right? The hope of one day being in God's full presence, enjoying all that God is and all that God does and all that God wants to pour out for us. That full joy in the future they look forward to. Now, Christian hope is not the same as worldly hope. Right, I'm not sure about you guys, but yesterday I kind of hoped that today wouldn't rain. It's been raining a lot. But, you know, worldly hope is kind of like wishful thinking. Right? It didn't, didn't come true. It's raining, isn't it? But Christian hope is not like that. Because Christian hope is tied to something that has already happened. Right? Worldly hope is usually a wish for the future that we're not sure about. Whereas Christian hope is based on something that has already happened. And the hope of God's glory is certain because it is tied to the peace that we already have with God. The future hope of seeing God face to face in full glory and enjoying that is tied to what He's already given us, peace with God, based on what Jesus has already done in the past. Since we stand right now in the grace of God, do you think you will see God's glory? And Paul says yes. And you rejoice in that, on that hope. Now, the second thing we see here is that we can even have joy in present suffering. Not just the future, but joy in present suffering. Because of this certain future hope, present suffering doesn't have to rob us of joy. In fact, suffering can produce more joy. Sound crazy, right? Siawa, how can suffering produce joy? Am I a bit... But that's what Paul's saying. Why? Because suffering is to joy what pumping iron is to gains. Right? You know, when you pump iron, it doesn't feel good, does it? If you say it feels good, you're sick, okay? Exercising, right? When you're running, busting your gut, you're like, <gasps> and you're on your vomit, and you exercise, and then there's pain, and you can't drive uh, because your steering wheel is so, so heavy, right? The, the, the subjective feeling of exercising is painful, and it doesn't feel good, but we know that it is good. In the same way that suffering doesn't feel good, but when you understand what it's doing to you, it is good. Because Paul says that suffering leads to endurance. Suffering is like a stimulus, right? Like a, every time you do a rep. It's like a stimulus to produce endurance. And when you do a lot of reps and you get more enduring and you endure more, you become stronger. You become filled with the character of enduring. And a character who endures through the sufferings of life over time, over a long period of time, remembers that suffering is for the present and glory is for the future. That enduring character begins to hope more and more, which means you begin to have more and more joy, right? As you keep looking forward to glory, it creates that joy that suffering in the present provides to remind you that suffering is present, but hope is future. And with hope comes joy. You know, it's, uh, it's this kind of expectancy that suffering provides. It's a bit like pregnancy, so I'm told. 
Well, I've been next to a pregnant wife four times, so I have uh, some level of personal experience. Uh, and you know in pregnancy, they've got morning sickness. I don't know why they call it morning sickness, because Faith had it all-day sickness, right? <laughs> and uh, there's a picture that looks really like clinical and cold here, but it's much worse than that. Usually there's stains everywhere. Just kidding. Don't want to scare you too much. Most of you here are not pregnant before. Okay, but morning sickness, all-day sickness, you feel terrible. And then once in a while, the baby will also kick, right? And you know how people say, oh, so cute, right? You can feel the bump. But when they kick you in the bladder, you feel like going to the toilet. Okay, you've got to go pee. And it feels miserable. But you know, if you ever lost a child, and we have, you remember that these sufferings are actually signs that a baby is alive. Right? You never thought about that, right? It's a sign that the baby is alive. And while it hurts, and while it feels terrible to be vomiting and having kicking going on, there's expectancy of the joy that will come when the baby is born. Right? This is sort of called expecting, I suppose. You're expecting not just a child, but you're expecting joy at the end of all this suffering, all this pain. And I think that's what Christianity is like, isn't it? Christians suffer. I'm talking to a group here of fairly young people, and in the first service, as I looked around, I could see different people in in the congregation who I have been meeting out with over many years who have suffered different things. Um prolonged illness and pain, depression and anxiety. I know people who have had suicidal tendencies, people who've had uh, death in the family, death of their children, death of their husband or wife, and many different ways in which Christians suffer. We suffer. And this message here is for us, isn't it? That we of all people can know joy in our suffering. But if you haven't yet suffered in life, then I think this is a great preparation for you, isn't it? To be able to see joy, uh, sorry, suffering as a, as a, even in suffering, you, you can have joy. To prepare yourself with this knowledge that it is rooted in the certainty of peace with God that gives us certain hope of glory that is to come. You file that away, put it in your heart, so that when suffering comes, there's a possibility that you can respond with joy and hang on to your faith in Christ. That's number one. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Second point here is that we have assurance, right? Paul wants us to know that this hope is certain. Christians can have total assurance. That's a bold claim, isn't it? Christians can have total assurance. It's an amazingly bold thing to say, but it's true, and I want to show you. The first foundation of hope Paul lays is the love of God. The first thing we can be certain about is God's love for you and I. It's concrete. It's real. It's not like, you know, when you have a guy or girl that you like and you wonder whether they like you or not, you pick a flower. Is it usually a lily or a daisy and then you pluck the petals out? She loves me. She loves me not. You ever tried it before? And then whichever is the last one is the truth. It's not like God's love is something that we feel and then we don't feel and it's there and it's not there. Because we're told that God's love is concrete. How is it concrete? It's as if it was being poured into us, right? There's a language here. It's being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So the question is, how do I know I have the Holy Spirit? And I think it's pretty clear, very clear in Scriptures. Whoever believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior has the Holy Spirit. Every single believer has the Holy Spirit. In other words, every single person who is justified by faith has the Holy Spirit who is doing the work of pouring God's love into our hearts. 
But then you might say to me, but it still sounds very subjective, right? Maybe the spirit is just a feeling and maybe the love is just a feeling. Well, we know the spirit is not a feeling. He's a person. And we know that love is not just a feeling. It's concrete because he explains to us in verse 6 onwards what this love is. The love of God is seen in the concrete expression of him sending his son. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So verse 6, right? For, because, how do we know God's love is poured into our hearts by the Spirit? Because, while we were still weak, we were still sinful, while we were still ungodly, while we were God's enemies, Jesus Christ, his Son, came to die for us, to redeem us to propitiate our sins. You know, the ungodly, sinful enemies like you and I. And then Paul says, you know, when you think about it, maybe if as a righteous person, you might possibly die for them. But if they're a really good person, like they'd be really good to you, you probably might die for them. Right? If they've done a lot for you, you might feel like you owe them your life. But what if it was your enemy? Someone who keeps destroying your, your prized possessions. Someone who keeps dragging your reputation in the mud. Someone who keeps hurting your family. Someone who mocks and scoffs at you and your very way of life. What about if that someone were someones? A whole group of people. The entire world. Would you die for any one of them? And Paul is saying, well, that's exactly what God does as a demonstration of the concrete love that he has given to us, which is being poured into our hearts by the very real person of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever doubted God's love for you? It's not a rhetorical question. I want you to answer in your head or even write it down. Have you ever doubted God's love for you? Have you ever felt in your emotional roller coaster of life that Sometimes you feel God loves you. Sometimes you feel like he doesn't. Maybe you've played the mental gymnastics of he loves me and he loves me not. And maybe you do it because you have depression or you're anxious. Or maybe there's been a period of spiritual dryness where you do feel so far from God that that distance makes you feel like maybe he doesn't love you. You can't feel it. Or maybe it's because of sin and the guilt that builds up with uh, sin that keeps on happening. It's like, if I'm so sinful, how can the most holy God really love me? Maybe you doubt whether the gospel really works and really is true. Now, those are all real feelings, which is why we need to see that God's love is not about feelings. We need to be reminded of the objective truth that God's love for you is assured. Not because of how good you are, not because of how strong your feelings for Him are, but because He has poured out His love into your hearts by the Holy Spirit, a love which He has already demonstrated to you, which you have received by faith. That's all. As long as you receive that gift, you know that He loves you, no matter how you feel. So I hope that in your guilt or in your depression or in your spiritual dryness, you remember that truth, that God loves you. But there's more. Have a look. At verse 9. Next point. Assurance of salvation. Verse 9. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, the first thing I want you to have a look at in verse 9 and 10 is the now statements, right? The now statements, what do we have uh, in Christ, in trusting Christ right now? And in verse 9, it tells us that right now we have justification, right? Which we heard last week was to do with being redeemed from the penalty of sin and having God's wrath propitiated, right? We have justification. And in verse 10 tells us that right now we are reconciled to God, right? We have peace with God. The broken relationship has mended now, look in verse 9 and 10 now at the much more statements in the two verses. Much more here means uh, how much more certain then can we have the next thing? So in verse 9, if we are already now justified, how much more certain will we be saved from God's wrath? And in verse 10, if we are already reconciled to God now through Christ's death, how much more certain will we be saved by his life? Well, the key here is to be able to see that the saved in verse 9 and 10 is a future thing which is a bit confusing because sometimes we read the Bible and it says that salvation is in the past or sometimes it's in the present and sometimes it's in the future. And so in the past, the Bible will say that we're already saved when we put our faith in Jesus. So whether it was last week, last year, 20 years ago, you've already been saved when you believed in Jesus. And in fact, it, it goes all the way back to when Jesus actually died on the cross, past salvation. Then the Bible also speaks about present salvation where we're being transformed and renewed day by day. Right, being given new life in Christ by the Spirit. But then the Bible also speaks about a future day, a day of judgment, a day of wrath, right? the final reckoning. And salvation needs to happen on that day too, right? to be saved from that judgment, to be saved from that wrath. And this is the future salvation that verse 9 and 10 is talking about. On that final day, we can be certain that when we stand before the, the throne of God in judgment, that He will declare us not guilty. He will declare us to be his children who he has received by grace through Jesus. Not guilty is the definite verdict for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. It's a foregone conclusion. So let me ask you, how do you feel about facing God in Judgment Day? Or if I ask you, how have you felt when some preacher or some book talks about Judgment Day? How do you feel? Do you feel a certain sense of unease uh, about Judgment Day, right? You're not certain whether you'll be saved or not. You're a bit fearful of Judgment Day. Now, some people couch it in very humble terms. They will say, you know, isn't it a bit too arrogant to be able to say for sure that you'll be okay on Judgment Day? I mean, at the end of the day, isn't it God's decision, right? Isn't it up to God to decide? I mean, I can only hope for the best, I usually hope here in that kind of wishful thinking, uncertain way. Now, can I say that to fear Judgment Day is to have a defective gospel? To fear Judgment Day is to have a defective faith. It is not arrogant to say that you can have certainty about how you will stand before God. It is faithfulness that says that. It is taking God at His word. It is actually to be unbelieving to say, I am not sure about Judgment Day, even though I believe in Jesus. Because God's Word clearly says 
you will be saved on that day because you're right now justified and reconciled to God. If you say, no, I'm not sure, you are saying, God, I don't believe you. You see that? We ought not to have fear about judgment day. Now, some of us have that fear because of this ongoing sin struggle we have, isn't it? The guilt that we face each day. Let me encourage you, in the same way I did before, where it came to having peace with God and having joy in suffering, that while we have those feelings of guilt and sin, and, I, I, and you do want to overcome sin in your life, don't ever think that your sin and guilt means that you won't stand before God righteous on judgment day. You see, the gospel is about showing us that it's not what we do and how well we overcome our sins. The gospel is the, is the glorious and gracious message that God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The love which is based on Jesus' death for us. And all we have to do is to trust in that. Not try to be better, not let our guilt get in the way, but just trust that God's words are true, that we stand rightly before him. And so Paul concludes this section, right, in verse 11, rejoice. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. This should be a message that fills us with joy. Now, the, the, the interesting thing about this word joy here in, in verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11, is the same word as in chapter 3, verse 27. I said that in chapter 3, 27, it was translated as boast in most of our translations. Because in chapter 3, 27, it's about how we can never boast about what we have done to be able to receive the grace of God. But here, it says boast because it's not about boasting in ourselves. It's about boasting and rejoicing in God, in Jesus, and what He, he has done. Right, for us. To rejoice is to boast in what God has done for us. Now, from this great personal blessing of having peace with God and having deep assurance, Paul now ups the gear, ups the ante, right, and shows us the great cosmic significance of what God has done for us through Christ. And he shows this to us in this last half of the chapter, 12, verse 12 to 21, by comparing and contrasting two humanities. Right, the first humanity is the disaster of the original humanity ruled by sin um, and death and headed by the first Adam. But the second is the glory and joy of the new humanity ruled by grace and life brought in by Jesus Christ. Now we all know what original humanity is like. We're living it. Uh, and Paul tells us, right? It begins with Adam. Look at verse 12, right? Through Adam, right, sin came into the world. We all know about Adam. He's the first man, and he sinned against God. He brought sin into the world, and then death followed like a shadow. Right? As surely as there is a shadow that follows in a sunny day, so sin, there should be a picture coming up here, follows, uh, death follows sin like a shadow. And then the humanity that followed Adam followed in Adam's footsteps of sin and death that follows. Right, that's the picture we see here in verse 12. And he explains that with Adam, he was a bit different. He had a direct rule, instruction from God not to do something. And the humanity that followed before Moses, before God gave his law, hundreds of years later, while they haven't got the law like Adam did, they still sinned. Because sin is sin. Right? Whichever, whether there's a law for it or not. You see, the sin of Adam, our human figurehead cannot be underestimated. His sin had an effect on all that followed him. 
Verse 17 and 21 speaks of Adam bringing in this rain of death. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? This place, this world where death rules. And in verse 18, his sin introduces condemnation into the human experience to be under the judgment and condemnation of God. Adam brought that in. Now, some of you here who've been a Christian and laugh and read stuff about this know that this is to do with original sin, right? And there's no real need for us to get into the nitty-gritty details of this debate because original sin, how exactly is Adam's sin related to the rest of humanity is something that we don't really need to get into right now. For us, it's enough to clearly see that there is a deep connection between Adam and those in Adam's race, every human being. What Adam did impacts and defines all who belong to Adam's humanity. That's every single one of us. And the reason that Paul is bringing this up is because he wants to show that the same pattern is true of Jesus as the head of the new humanity, right? Same pattern. Jesus, likewise, impacts and defines all who belong to him. So once again, look at verse 18 and 19 first. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam's, that many were made uh, sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus's, the many will be made righteous. You see the pattern? You see, the new humanity in Jesus uh, is defined by righteousness and obedience. Because Jesus' righteousness, uh, his, his, his obedient life uh, led to his perfect death and sacrifice for us. And his righteousness then flows to us, right? Through being justified by faith for all who belong to him. In verse 15, we're told that through Jesus comes the grace of God, the gift is given to us. In verse 17, through Jesus brings the reign of life. In grace's glorious way comes righteousness and eternal life. And so while the pattern is the same, the one for the many, the one for the many, the effects are completely different. Can you see that? Right? Uh, in, in Adam, through Adam, his sins deserved judgment. But through Jesus, we receive undeserved grace. Where Adam brought in utter disaster, Jesus brings in life and blessing. Where with Adam, everything is just bad all bad. With Jesus, it is nothing but the absolute best. Right? What Jesus brings, what belonging to Jesus means, is just a whole nother level, 10 million levels better than what Adam brought us. And this is the third joy of being justified by faith. It is to be transferred from that old humanity that we all belong to, that we all experience, and to be brought into this new humanity headed by Jesus, a life of grace, eternal life with God. Now, in the past few weeks, we've been dosed up, haven't we, in a big way on the bitterness of sin. Right? Sin is like almost every drug we take. No matter what kind of drug it is, it just tastes bitter. Right? And we've been popping these sin pills the last few weeks as we heard God's word. And I started this morning by saying, you know, sin will take you further than you want to go will keep you longer than you want to stay and will cost you more than you want to pay. It is the curse that keeps on cursing. But in response to that, God's grace, God's blessings 
are a gift that keeps on giving to counteract sin's curse that keeps on cursing. Today is all about the good news. And today we can say, we can transform this quote, right? So the uh, 2018, no, where's it gone? Okay. Whole 2018 says, Grace will take us further than we ever imagined we'd go. Grace will keep us longer than we ever imagined we'd stay. And grace gives to us more than we ever imagined without pay, without anything we have to do. This is what we see in this morning. You see, God's grace begins with justification that we have in Christ by faith. And from justification flows the joy of having peace with God. It flows the comfort of having assurance of His love and of salvation. And from justification, we are told this amazing truth that we transferred from the old humanity into the new humanity. And Paul says, rejoice. Have joy in all this, right? Now, is this a joy that we can feel? Now, like I said before, even though joy and peace are realities that are objective, they are also, they should lead to a subjective response, right? There should be some feelings. We all feel joy, don't we? Who are the Man U fans here? I hate to say this, but there's a few of you. And last night, Man U won, right? Uh, 2-1, wasn't it? And for that last six minutes of, uh, uh, in the overtime period, there was that stress that you had as a, as a supporter, right? You were watching it. And there was this deep-seated joy in you, right, that was trying to burst forth if you could hold on to the lead. And then uh, Mo, uh, is it Mo Salah? Such an unfortunate name. Salah means wrong, right? <laughs> and then that last kick, psh, left foot over the bar. And then everyone's like, oh, the Liverpool friends here are crying. And the Man U friends are like, whoa, jumping for joy, right? We all feel joy, come on. If it's not a Man U, it's, it's some other sporting code or it's some holiday experience or some food that you eat. We all feel joy. We're joyful people. So the question is, do we feel joy as Christians about the gospel? Right? It's something that we have to consider, isn't it? Because there are a lot of us who we can talk joyfully about our interests and our hobbies and our pursuits in this life. But when we talk about the gospel, it seems so uncertain, so dry, so academic, so contentless. You see, we are told that God's love is being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And while that love is concrete, it's based on Jesus' death, it's still love. It's still something we can experience, isn't it? Now, of course, it has to be connected to the truth of the gospel message. And maybe it is that we don't feel that joy, we don't express it, it's because we don't quite get this message. We haven't fully understood it, or we haven't fully appreciated it. We haven't let it really make us feel like it's the best news in the world, not just say it is, but actually know it is. Because in those moments, I think maybe the joy that you feel for your favorite sporting team or activity will never compare to the joy that you feel about the gospel. Now, is this Christian joy something that we can uh, hold on to even in the difficulties of life? Is it robust? Is it strong? Now, it is, because joy, as we all know, is not the same as happy feelings. But your joy isn't just to be happy, you know, frivolous happiness. Joy doesn't necessarily mean zen-like peace, like in those original photos I showed you. Christian joy is deep, right? It's tied to concrete realities. 
Some people say it's like, more like the tide under the sea more than it is the waves on the top. Sometimes the waves are there, sometimes they're not. But the tide is always present. There's this deepness in our joy. Almost like when you're a follower of Man U and you're a Christ supporter. Right? There is this Biden sense that you're a Man U person during the week. And in, in some moments, that there'll be exhilarating joy when you win. And then other times, there'll be sadness when you lose, right? But you ride that because Man U is deep in you. Or whatever else, right? Maybe a friendship or an activity or a pursuit in life. It fills you with joy because it's deep. Christian joy is robust like that. It's deep. And when on the surface, things can happen to us. The inside part of us, the joy, the convictions, even the happiness, can I say, is there. Because joy is tied to what has already happened, right? Jesus' death for us that redeems us and propitiates us. The joy that we have is built on God's love for us that can never change. The joy that we have is based on the future certain hope of glory. And so I ask you, what in this life can rob us of that? What disappointment in your study or work can affect any of this? What broken relationship in your life can take that away? What failed study or work or, or sickness even? And maybe the fear of death. What in this world can take us away from what God has already given to us? And the answer is nothing. Nothing can take that away. Today is a day about joy that can never be taken away. A joy which we cannot say is inexpressible, but we can express it, can't we? And we can experience it because this joy all flows from putting your trust in Christ, which means that you're right now justified, which means that you have the peace of God, assurance, and you are part of the humanity. Let me pray that this is something that we hold on to, that we will experience and that we will live through until we see Jesus face to face. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Uh, it, it, it speaks to us in ways that I hope that we, uh, we will keep experiencing in the days and weeks and months and years to come. For it speaks about these glorious truths of the gospel of grace that you have revealed to us, you have given to us, that we can now experience. Father, no doubt there are some of us here sitting in this room in which we are struggling with all kinds of things that rob us of the joy that we can have of the gospel. But there are people here who are uncertain of your presence and of your reality. There are people here who are suffering from depression and anxiety. There are people here who have been abused in different ways such that they, they find it hard to know how it is to be loved. For others here, our sin and guilt might be so overwhelming that we wonder whether you can truly love us, that we can truly be saved. For others of us, we're just distracted by so many other things in this world, and we don't feel much when it comes to these glorious truths. For wherever we are that is struggling, we pray that your word would pierce through that right now, that you'll help us to really know, not just in our heads, but dig deep into our hearts, the grace that you have poured out on us, the joys of being justified, the blessings that flow, to marvel at what it means to have peace with you, to be able to stand right now in your grace, to have full access all the time in your presence, to be able to know that assurance of your love and of salvation, and to know that we're no longer part of 
Adam's humanity in sin and brokenness and death, but we're now part of Jesus, part of grace, part of life. For those of us who already know this joy, we pray that you help us sustain it, help us to keep knowing it and experiencing it, and help us to keep sharing that with people around us. We pray for your goodness to be known and felt by us today, we pray in Jesus' name.